Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 43, and it's the first episode in a two-part series, so 43 and 44 should be listened together. The story is about Julia Ann Mercer, a most extraordinary witness story, and that, along with a little bit of a wander and a discussion about our podcast website, well, all of that had to be broken into two episodes with reasonable length. And this one is important in some ways when framing the conspiracy versus lone gunman discussion. You'll see what I mean as we progress. First, good news, listeners. Way back when I first got started with this podcast, I made it a point to set up a website. The website is www.podcastjfk.com. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T-J-F-K.com. I also have an email where you can reach me. It's a Gmail account. It's podcastjfk at gmail.com. Last winter, almost immediately, we ran into some technical problems getting the website set up and running to my satisfaction. Honestly, I had to focus my energies on episode development, so the website went by the wayside, and it's been collecting dust ever since. Remember, I'm an N of one in this production shop. Somewhere around episode 17 or 18, I asked a good friend of mine, a former colleague from many years ago who has an IT background, if he could whip the website into some sort of working order. Well, my friend Dusty did just that. It's a simple and very easy to use site. Nothing fancy here, but perfectly functional and just right for our podcast. Originally, I had planned to place specific supplementary materials for each episode out on the website and also give some additional commentary myself from time to time, along with providing a blog account so that any listener could make comments on each episode and engage in a discussion if other folks wanted to join in. Well, as I said, Dusty did a great job of setting up the infrastructure to do just that. But the simple work of keeping it up and posting information each time we published an episode has been absent. As a result, I really have not promoted the website to you as an audience. Again, this really has just been a function of my own limited bandwidth. There's only so much time in a day, and frankly, I've just been lazy about it. Over the last couple of days, though, I've worked a bit on the website, and I now feel that we're in a position to reintroduce it to you. It's definitely still a work in progress, but now we have taken advantage of what Dusty has set up for us to use. We now have a separate blog entry set up for each of the current inventory of 42 episodes. What that means is that you can go to the website, find the episode that you want to comment on, probably the one that you just listened to. But regardless, there is an individual blog entry for each of the current listing of 42 episodes. And I promise to keep adding a new blog entry going forward for each episode right at the same time that I make the episode itself available to you. You might even want to start writing and blogging, perhaps finding your way into a discussion with someone else on the site if others begin to participate in the blog as well. I hope many of you do. 
As I said, right now there is a separate blog entry for each one of the episodes and a rudimentary description of that episode as sort of a first entry on each blog. It's basically the same information as I post on the Facebook and LinkedIn posts when I announce the availability of a new episode. There are no supplementary materials for the most part, yet, on the website, except for on a couple of episodes where Dusty and I were purely experimenting on the placement of materials and how easy it would be to do so. And it will be easy, by the way. Again, thanks to Dusty. So, slowly, over some period of time, I hope to go back and keep adding at least some supplemental materials where applicable to each blog entry, if for nothing more than reference and certainly to help listeners who are new to the podcast and want to contemporaneously access the additional content for each episode as they themselves progress through the episodes. Sorry that wasn't there and available for your journey so far, but the next generation of listeners should get a better look. And whatever you can add, too, as an informed listener, will make it just that much more richer as well. For now, the main benefit, if you are a current listener, is that you have a forum and a format to make additional comments and inquiry and to carry on a conversation with others about a particular topic. JFK assassination forums, in general, tend to get pretty heated. To be honest, that is the last thing I want to have happen here. I don't expect a lot of people will be using our blogs, but if by chance you decide that you will, then please just be mindful and respectful in whatever you write and say to others. That's really my only rule, courtesy. And I must say that the limited inquiries that I have gotten so far from listeners, well, you have all been superb, very mindful and respectful toward the podcast, toward others, and toward me of which I am very appreciative, and it's partly why I decided to go ahead and reintroduce the website instead of just shutting it down. So, thank you. Your efforts as listeners have helped to make the ongoing availability of the website possible. The website is mobile-friendly. One more very good thing about it being so simple. You can read and make comments on the run if you like. So if you go to the website, using your phone, there is a small black box marked menu in the upper right-hand corner. Click on it. Then, once you've done that and have the drop-down menu showing, well, there are only two choices. So click on the choice that says Episode Summaries with Links and Images. There you can see each individual blog set up in one big continuous scroll. So just scroll down as they are in episode order, starting with the latest episode. Scroll down until you find the episode that you want to engage with, and then click on it. You can start reading and blogging from there. So again, the website is www.podcastjfk.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-J-F-K.com. And my separate email is podcastjfk at gmail.com. Hope to see you going to the website and hope to hear from you too. Suggestions and comments and questions are always welcome. For those of you still listening, we just hit 30,000 downloads. Originally, I thought we would have a successful podcast if we hit 5,000 downloads. To be transparent though, this success has been at least partially driven by the fact that we are at 42 episodes and going strong. We never expected to have that many, but still, it's 30,000 episodes and growing. I'm just saying.
So I just want to say thank you to all of you. This episode of my own life, this season, that I get to tell the JFK story in my own words is a labor of love. It's truly a bucket list thing for me. So thanks for going on this cross-country trip. You know, that is the way I described it to you in the first episode, including all the wanders. And we have done just that. And you have stayed with it, stayed with the wander. And we are not to the Golden Gate Bridge yet, but hasn't it been a fun ramble across the inroads of this great country? We may never pass this way again. That is what makes it so special. And you know, we are laying the breadcrumbs on the trail that we are making so that someday others can take the wander with us. That is the beauty of a podcast. Dot and Dina would be proud of me. You might remember the story I told about those ladies in an earlier episode. They helped to teach me the love of the wander across this great country of ours. I miss you too, ladies. Mom and Dad miss you too. So... Let's play the music one more time, just the way we used to do it at the Phillips place on a Friday night, and dance all night, the way we all used to do that too. And before I get up early in the morning and head west to the Golden Gate. Dreams, so they say, for the fools and they let them drift away. Like the silent dove Should be flying But it's only just begun Like Columbus in the olden We're going to start today's story with one more wander because I think it sets up the story of Mercer nicely. You know, one thing I wonder about is how many of you as listeners have been on an actual jury in your lifetime. It's a real experience. I've been called a number of times, but have not served in many, many years. I served on a federal jury once in my earlier years. And it was a trial that was only expected to last about three days, and it actually lasted about 30. My employer was thankfully forgiving. I worked at night some to make up for my daytime absence. I won't go into the details about that case, but I'll tell you it's always an awesome responsibility to make a determination in a criminal case, where the prosecutors must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. It's a serious matter to convict someone of a crime. It affects the rest of their life. It affects people around them. But often, that's the right decision for a jury to come to. And as a juror, you can make a conviction with doubt in your mind. Yep, you can. Just not anything that causes you to believe that the defendant is not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. A minor doubt is okay. In other words, the prosecutors don't have to prove an absolute circumstance, but they do have to address all the matters that result in the jurors 
eliminating all of their reasonable doubts. So, regardless of whatever happened, actually happened, it's still up to the prosecutors to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of the jurors that the crime occurred and the defendant committed that crime. That is the system. The burden of proof is on the prosecutors. But the point of that statement is twofold. Number one, there is a pretty high standard to get to beyond a reasonable doubt, the standard for conviction. And number two, as I said, as a juror, you can still have doubts and still vote for a conviction. These concepts are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are inextricably linked and tied together by the term reasonable. Now, what constitutes reasonable, regardless of all the instruction given to the jury by the judge and in the legal process itself, it's still up to an individual to interpret what that means inside of their own head. That is just the very human thing about it. That's why the jury selection is so important in a criminal trial. And in fact, over the years, the outcome of most famous criminal trials has really been substantially determined, at least in part, by the arduous process that goes on during jury selection and the use of peremptory challenges by both sides to eliminate jurors who they believe might be biased in their opinions on the matter at hand. We have said all this before. You know, most murders don't have an eyewitness or eyewitnesses. That's why the forensics are so important. The experts will tell you that this portion of the evidence doesn't lie. It just is what it is. Certainly, that doesn't preclude the reckless interpretations of that evidence that does occur from time to time. At first, you might say, thank goodness, especially after listening to all of this witness testimony and all the human variation in this case, the JFK case, a case where so many people were in the same place, and they should have all heard essentially the same thing, and in many cases, seen the same thing. Literally, there were hundreds of people there, but some people heard three shots, some people heard four, some people heard a shot that was one and then a pause and then two shots in rapid succession right after. And then some people heard two rapid shots first and then a pause and then one more shot. Of course, a few other people heard four shots, with the last two shots being described as so very close together, a circumstance where the third and fourth shots probably occur almost simultaneously. So close together that Maybe this is why, in some folks' mind, they morphed into just one shot, making it a total of just three. And then there was the more wild and fantastic with five and six shots and more, and even coming from people who seemed pretty credible, at least at the beginning. Jean Hill is a good example. But really, it's unfair to single her out. There were others who heard more shots, and some even said they heard more shots that happened to have occurred after the actual fatal headshot. Now, you're just hoping that one of them looks at you and says, call me crazy, but that's what I heard. Unfortunately, it's really just left to you to sort out who's crazy and who isn't, because no one is proclaiming that they are crazy as they give their testimony. So what is my point in this wander? I guess the hardest part for me in all of this is the natural human tendency of a few to seek fame in the midst of such a tragedy. 
to say far out and fantastic things that are likely to be untrue, and as a result, their recklessness and selfish behavior spawns a program of disinformation, one that has been destructive and designed purposefully for personal aggrandizement, yet perfectly aligned and used by any true conspiracy members, if such folks exist, because conspirators couldn't have asked for more of a present from the witness corps. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain by example. This latest series of episodes has an element of just that in it, all of these fantastic stories. You then combine them with honest mistakes by some witnesses, or at least the natural variation in eyewitness testimony, and soon enough, all it is is a fantastic soup of conflicting evidence. Then, like a little bit of spice thrown in for good measure, change the content of a report or two at the sheriff's office or an FBI report in order to strengthen the lone gunman narrative. Again, I'm not charging anyone with anything here, but it certainly appears that things like that may have happened in a few circumstances. Well, all of that together does what you would naturally assume it would do in any circumstance. It muddies the water. It makes it so murky it destroys just enough credibility of the whole circumstance that suspicion about everything prevails, and a reasonable working definition of reasonable doubt also goes by the wayside. Okay, this is a good point to pivot out of that wander, and let's get to the reason why we have chosen the subject we have chosen for today's episode. I decided to go out of order just a bit and reverse a couple of episodes because as I was having these thoughts that I've been rambling about here, it was very clear to me that one of the witnesses that was on deck and about ready to go, well, she should go first because she's the best example of that mishmash of ideas that I just shared with you. And because we just spent some good time with Professor McAdams, there probably is no one better to help keep our head level-headed about what we are to hear when we listen to this witness that we will meet today and as we hear the far-out and fantastic tale of Mercer. Let's do just that. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 43. Joe Murphy was a patrolman in the traffic division of the Dallas Police Department, and on the day of the assassination, he was stationed there in Dealey Plaza, on Elm Street, near the Triple Underpass, and he was there to assist in handling traffic. That would be an important function to keep the route for the motorcade clear of anything that might slow it down or otherwise impede the intended progress along the parade route. At approximately 10.30 or somewhere between 10.30 and 10.40 a.m. that morning, Murphy would recall that he witnessed and became acquainted with a pickup truck that had stalled out on Elm Street and that was located between Houston Street and the underpass. As he relayed his official statement on this seemingly routine event, he was unable to recall the name of the company to whom this truck belonged. But he stated in his report that it was the property of the company working on the first National Bank building at Elm and Ackard Street in Dallas. There were three construction men in the truck, and he took one to the bank building to obtain another truck 
in order to assist in moving the stalled one. The other two men remained with the stalled pickup truck, along with two other officers. Shortly prior to the arrival of the motorcade, the man he had taken to the bank building returned with a second truck, and all three of the men left with the two trucks, one pushing the other. Murphy noted that the men did not leave the truck except for the one he took to the bank building, and all three left together sometime prior to the arrival of the president's motorcade. He described the stalled truck as being a green pickup and noted the truck had the hood raised during the time it was stalled. You know, sort of the way most people might send the message that a vehicle is broken down. This truck had side tool bins on it, and the men had a considerable amount of construction equipment in the back of the truck. Murphy further stated that it was probable that one of these men had taken something from the rear of this truck in an effort to start it. He stated that these persons were under observation all during the period that they were stalled on Elm Street because the officers wanted the truck moved prior to the arrival of the motorcade, and it would have been impossible for any of them to have had anything to do with the assassination of President Kennedy. A Dallas police radio exchange on Police Channel 1 would later confirm the existence of this circumstance as the officers had initially called for a tow truck. But that request was canceled after the men were able to go back to where they were working and get a second truck, a second truck that could pull the stalled truck out of the way and out of Dealey Plaza. Now, you might now wonder what precipitated the need for this traffic officer to make that sort of official statement about a seemingly benign event that occurred about an hour or two before the president's motorcade was scheduled to arrive in Dealey Plaza. Well, the reason would be Julia Ann Mercer. You see, this young lady, a tender young lady in her early 20s at the time, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, was driving through the plaza that day, and she had her own experience with that green pickup truck. One that would stir conspiracy theories and, like it or not, would turn her into a celebrity witness, but not by choice. And this celebrity of sorts that was thrust upon her would result in a deliberate attempt by her to stay out of the limelight of the case for most of these last 60 years. She would get no airtime, as you might expect, in the show that was the Warren Commission. But true to form, well-respected researchers such as Sylvia Mayer would catch wind of her story, and later Jim Garrison would resurrect her as a potential witness for the Clay Shaw trial, and once again thrust the unwanted notoriety upon her. In Garrison's words, Julia Mercer was a highly intelligent individual of obvious good character, the kind of witness whom any lawyer would feel fortunate to be able to call before a jury. Garrison went on to say that her conversion from the status of witness to non-witness, that is, by the authorities and the Warren Commission, is a forceful commentary on the superstate's serene disregard of truth, on its contempt for the mind of the individual. Here is what happened now, and it's a draw from a mix of her so-called official statement on the day of the assassination, and later what Garrison would add, based on the time he spent with Mercer, and as he retold it in his own book, Heritage of Stone. Ms. Mercer was driving westward on Elm Street and had just passed the grassy knoll when a traffic jam occurred, briefly halting all movement. 
as she pulled to a stop just past the now famous Grassy Knoll area. But before you get to the triple underpass itself, she noticed on her right a green, unmarked pickup truck parked next to the curbing. To her considerable surprise, she saw a young man dismount from the truck and remove a rifle. The rifle was wrapped in brown paper, but its outlines were quite unmistakable. The young man carried the rifle up the steep incline, which was a westward extension of the grassy knoll, just across the railroad tracks from the knoll. Aware that the president soon was to be passing by this location, Julia Ann Mercer stared at the driver of the truck, who was still at the steering wheel, despite the fact that it was now stopped. The driver, whose round face and thinning dark hair would become a familiar one to her, turned and glanced back at her. He stared at her for a long moment, and she saw his features distinctly. One more time before the traffic jam cleared up, their eyes met, and she looked at him full in the face. Then she drove off and let the incident pass from her mind. When the news of the assassination rocked the world, Miss Mercer recalled the incident of the truck and the unloading of the rifle. It rocked her enough to go see the Dallas Sheriff's Department and tell her story to them, right on the day of the assassination. Like all the interviews conducted by the Sheriff's Office that day, there was an affidavit drawn up. Later, that same affidavit would become a source of controversy as Jim Garrison would declare that some of the information in it was altered and that her signature on it, and essentially the original, was a forgery. A forgery whose later alteration was done in a manner that ensured that it supported what was contained in two subsequent FBI reports covering three more meetings that were held with Julia Ann Mercer. Meetings that were held on November 23rd, November 25th, and then again on November 28th, 1963. These FBI reports, if you believe Jim Garrison and Mercer, and what they said at the time of the Clay Shaw trial, well, those statements would point to a less than forthright reporting by the FBI in those subsequent reports. Now let me explain what happened here, and what Garrison would later explain resulted in the FBI's need to have the original affidavit altered, altered in a way that would help the government revise its own FBI reports, so that all of them could be consistent with a narrative that was different from what Mercer really had said. What she claims she saw that day is fantastic in the literal sense of the word. And that fantastic story taken down in the Sheriff's Office report triggered a visit by the FBI the next day on Saturday. Keep in mind that this is one day after the assassination and one day before Oswald's murder by Ruby. The date and timing of this meeting is critical to the story. FBI agents showed Miss Mercer identification photographs. They lay in front of her perhaps two dozen pictures of men. Among them, she recognized the driver of the truck from which the rifle was unloaded just past the knoll. When the photograph was turned over by one of the agents, she saw the man's name, Jack Ruby. She remembered the name afterward. She informed the agents that this was the driver of the truck from which the rifle was taken. When asked if the young man resembled Lee Oswald, whose face was already being hammered into history as the lone assassin, she replied that he did not resemble Oswald in any way. 
Next, the sun sets on Dallas that night, and then, fast forward to Sunday morning, November 24th, Julia Mercer was watching television with her family when she saw the live television broadcast of Jack Ruby shooting Oswald in the stomach. She yelled to her family that this was the fellow who had been driving the pickup truck, which had unloaded the young man with a rifle. Let's pause there and ponder this situation. You see, if the FBI did bring a batch of pictures to the party on Saturday and Miss Mercer did pick out Ruby from that batch, well, as of Sunday morning, the FBI had a real problem. Lucy would have some real splaining to do here. Well, not Lucille Ball and not Mercer in this case, but them FBI agents. First, for them to have included a picture of Jack Ruby in that array of photographs used for identification on Saturday, the day before he actually shot Oswald, and for it to be related to a discussion of a truck that might have been used to carry a second group of shooters. By definition, a conspiracy then, with him suspected of being in it, well, just his inclusion in the picture gallery before Sunday's events makes this circumstance into something much more relevant. What did the authorities know or suspect about Jack Ruby at that moment, and why? Why would he have been included in that picture gallery for her to identify? And now, on Saturday, before the shooting of Oswald, they have a credible witness on record stating that he drove a truck and one of the passengers pulled out a gun case and made their way up the hill to the grassy knoll and in plain sight of a good number of Dallas police officers. Now, at this point in the story, the mystery starts to appear. The FBI report for that meeting with Miss Mercer, a meeting that was held on Saturday, November 23rd, does indeed document that they met with Miss Mercer on that date and that she substantially recounted the same story the same story that later appeared to line up so elegantly in the sheriff's office affidavit from the day before. The FBI report states that on the matter most important, she saw a man pull out a gun case from the green pickup truck. Notice that I said gun case and made no mention of a gun wrapped in brown paper. Yet the report for the November 23rd FBI meeting with Mercer, well, it contains no discussion about any photo identification session with her, none at all. Mercer would not understand that this omission had taken place and perhaps never would have known it were it not for Jim Garrison and the discussions that she had with him as he was preparing for the Clay Shaw trial. She would learn that her original sheriff's affidavit had been altered, altered to reshape critical facts, and then the FBI reports were now missing the photo session, which occurred on Saturday, and were surprisingly now very consistent in what they were representing, surprisingly consistent with a copy of her affidavit that was produced by Garrison for her review, one with her signature on it that she would clearly declare was a forgery, as she had not signed the statement that was produced, and in fact, her signature on that document, that is, according to Jim Garrison, didn't even resemble her actual signature. Thank you for listening to episode 43 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.